Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We are here with five-time primetime Emmy nominee B.J. Novak. He's made his feature directorial debut on Focus Features and Blumhouse's Vengeance. Here he is. It's been said uh, to me by many sources that now more than ever is the hardest time to make a film for theatrical. What's your take on that? Uh, I'm sure you're right. I I don't know nearly as much as you do about um, all those sources and reports. Of course, it seems that way to me too. I was very, um, that's why I went right to Jason Blum, who I had read, has a a workaround, you know, has this, has his own lane in producing movies where he takes these very small budget bets on first time filmmakers and gives them a lot of control and no money up front and uh, sees, you know, releases the ones that work and writes off the ones that don't. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that, but, but I did find that to be the system. They did take a bet on me. I met Jason Blum and Cooper Samuelson, his executive um, creative executive, and they liked, they liked the script. They liked me. And they liked that it was called Vengeance, I'm sure, and they could do it cheaply. And so they they said, let's go for it. And that itself is a miracle. But, um, you know, I think they see themselves as um, as sort of an island of simplicity in in the sea of complicated filmmaking. I, it, I, their business, I'm sure, is way more complicated than it looks, but that is their narrative and, and they they were true to it. So I'm I'm very lucky that, I, I had the presence of mind to go to them and that they made it work for me. How long had you been looking to make your feature theatrical debut? You know, it's what I always wanted to do in my life when I, you know, I'm one of those kids at that age who, um, at the age I'm at now that saw Pulp Fiction in the theater. I feel like it's a cliche to anyone of my generation, but maybe it's new to people and others. But, you know, I, I saw Pulp Fiction in the theater the night it came out and I thought, I want to be a filmmaker. You know, it was, I like, I loved movies, but it had never really clicked for me that someone had made a movie until I saw that son of a preacher man came on and there was an angle. And, and I thought somebody chose this song. Somebody chose that shot. And I know who that guy is. Cause I saw him in entertainment weekly. His name is Quentin Tarantino and he's cool. And I want to do things. That's what I want to do, it, like a lightning bolt. And um, so ever since then, I have wanted to do this. But, um, you know, I, I also didn't over-romanticize it. I think that, um, you know, getting to work on The Office is, in many ways, a lot more satisfying creatively than, you know, uh, saying action behind a movie camera. 
Um, so I, I didn't feel unfulfilled that I was doing other things. I felt completely lucky in other reasons, but, um, but yes, it was to be behind a movie camera saying action was, was the fulfillment of a dream uh, as well. And how long has vengeance been with you? You, and you, you do have the Zen cadence of a public radio announcement. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a compliment that my voice sounds like a public radio guy. I, I agree with you, which made me think I was good for the role and also made me think I definitely have enough of a self-deprecating attitude to not be someone who's casting myself because he wants to look cool. I was like, yeah, you know what? My voice does sound for better and worse a little like that. Um, so thank you. I, um, what was the exact question though? I got um, how long has vengeance been with you? Oh, sure. Um, you know, I had the idea, sort of the emotional idea of it a long time ago, 2014, 2015, something about um, someone in sort of a, a shallow um, life who is pulled out of his New York or LA bubble uh, with a misunderstanding, you know, a dating misunderstanding with all the texting and the apps. You really don't know who's who thinks of you as more or vice versa. And that this person would be pulled to um, a, a place that he didn't want to go to with this family that thought that they were really serious at this funeral. I knew it was dark, but, you know, we had done the British office adaptation. I knew I felt I I loved dark comedy and, and I'd seen how to make it um, how to make it real and not too bleak. And and that idea kind of kept developing and developing when I realized, oh, he'd probably go to a place like. Texas. And then I realized, well, it's not just a story about disconnection between people. You know, the whole country is disconnected for kind of the same reasons that we see each other more as online characters and avatars uh, than we do in terms of actually getting to know how close we are or aren't. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. You have this personal, almost dating comedy on the surface, but then you also have this, this cultural um, world that is the setting that is even more dangerous and in terms of misunderstandings. There's that great moment in the movie where Boyd Holbrook's Ty, mm -hmm. who is the brother of the, the girl that you knew who's slain, there's an explosion when things, by the way, there's going to be a spoiler alert on this and this will come out after the movie, but there's this great explosion that you guys have in the parking lot that yeah. says, everything that's been bubbling up about red and blue state divide. And it's about, you came in with a very good attitude of, I want to understand them and I want to, you know, put a nice focus on them. And then you get aggravated. Can mm -hmm. you expound more on that? Because it, that's a really, that was a, that and the ending are, are like mind blowing parts of the film. That, thank you. That scene um, was the most exciting surprise for me in terms of what it ended up being and saying. In the script, I thought, well, you know, it's time for people to be stripped bare and really say what they really think or their darkest things that they've been thinking the same time and trying not to think or trying not to say. And yes, my character does lash out at every, you know, furious sentiment he would have about red state people. And I did not hold back. Um, and they didn't either, you know, and as I wrote it, it was sort of like more of a, a necessary having it out um, intellectually, politically, you know, 
in this in the movie it was an emotional one it was a scene of heartbreak and it ended up i realized and phineas uh phineas o'connell who actually just won the oscar for a best original song with his sister Billie eilish who he produces music for uh, wrote the score and it was his first score um despite that oscar and uh, we worked very closely together to figure it out and he handed in a piece of score that was a very emotional piece of score, not an intellectual one. And uh, Lee Kilton Smith, our executive producer, who is also one of the great acting teachers in Los Angeles, was there on set, really grounding the scene as an emotional one. And I realized watching it that it ended up being the, um, the most intimate scene in the movie because these people were heartbroken that they were saying these things to each other. Mm-hmm. And that after all of this, and that they were enough of a family in a sense, that they would scream at each other um, in the parking lot of a Whataburger about what they really thought. That's not how you treat strangers. And it's, it's how you pe- treat people on Twitter, but not emotionally. So it to me, that, that ended up being the most intimate thing of the movie, that you had earned that fight that people who wanted to connect um, ended up in this place. And, and I, I, it ended up being maybe my favorite scene in the film for that reason, that it's not what you expect. Was the ending always with you or did you change it at a certain point in time? Like closer uh, to production? That was always how it how it had to end. And mm-hmm. um, people asked me that reading the script. They were like, are you sure? Really? Huh. Um, but I, I always knew it had to end that way because um, to me, there's an inevitability to the structure of the story as well as to this character, my character, who thinks he knows it all and has all the answers mm-hmm. and needs to, needs to really become the story and, and throw that away to become a person. And so I did, I did all, and really confront a version of himself that he regrets and he, in a sense, wishes he could um, have vengeance on. So the emotional um, logic of the story led to the plot ending. Okay, because I was going to say what's cool is practically speaking, the mm-hmm. ending the ending makes sense in, in regards to its setting, where it is, mm-hmm. and how he gets away with it, how your character gets away with it. However, the type of person you are, one wouldn't expect that. But, right. but it all made sense. For some reason, it all somehow magically made sense. You know, like, do I think your character has that streak in him? Uh, no, but no. but um, it emo- like you said, the emotional logic. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I also, you know, I think that that the fact that it 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 sort of um it, People are a little rattled by it after, I think is is good because that's also the truth of it, that you can get very caught up. And it also speaks to, you know, this is this is what has sort of seeped into Ben Manalowitz after, you know, a few weeks in this house. Imagine what it's like after a few generations in a place, how much certain ways of thinking and feeling become you that have, have no judgment on, on your individual character. It's just we're all a product of our setting and background. So I think that that, uh, that shock to him of sort of being absorbed into that culture and that logic for, for good as well as bad 
is what brought him like that. But I think the fact that audiences leave and that's their first question is, is a good thing because it means it wasn't neat and it wasn't expected. And I, I don't think it was upsetting, by the way. I, I loved it. It was a wonderful surprise that worked. Right. Um, did you have to fight for the ending? And when I say fight, either with the producers or the no, studio. I didn't like, have to fight. I didn't have to fight with anybody over anything. Yeah. Fact, that made me, you know, that's that's really the Blumhouse model and it focuses values. Mm -hmm. And and you know, it's not a superhero movie. So it's not like, you know, China's gonna pull out if you don't you know, say that, you know, it's, the stakes are, are what they are. So it was really just, you know, some people saying, are you sure? But that also goes very well to Blumhouse's producing model, which is this um, um, almost manipulative, I don't think by design, but for me, it was, it was brilliantly manipulative in that they would, Cooper Samuelson would always make suggestions, but I never had to take them. So that made me wait, tell me more, tell me more. What else? Why? You know, because I want my movie to be as good as possible. Cooper's a smart guy. So it's like, I think this, I would do that. I think this doesn't work. I think this will work better that way. But he, if he had said, cut this, add that, I'd say, you know, fuck you. I'm a, I'm a genius. You know, when, when he says, maybe I'd do that. I'd say, wait, no, tell me more. I'm a first time filmmaker. <laughs> so, um, so no one told me to do anything is, is the short answer though. Um, tell me about this murderer's row you put together. I mean, you got Phineas as yeah. your composer, John Mayer yeah. and, and Ashton uh, showing wow. up in the film. Were these guys always buds? Oh, well, um, John Mayer is is such a great um, sort of outlier in this. John has, has been a very good friend for years. And, you know, he has this great opening scene sort of riff with me, a large yeah. And uh, just to sort of set up who is this guy and what world is he in? And I thought, okay, what's me at my feeling coolest, but probably not being that cool. It's John is a good friend. And over the years, especially when we were younger, us being out at a cool place, um, thinking we're cool, impressing each other, looking at our phones the whole time. I thought, well, that's both a fun setting and sort of hopefully lovably pathetic um, that these guys aren't what they think they are. So, um, you know, I called them up and I was like, um, I have this vision for us riffing, you know, um, here's the, here's the vibe. Here's the catchphrase. We got to keep repeating. And, um, and he flew out for it. So that was just a friend call as well as a friend inspiration. And it was actually through him. I was at a party um, and not even a party. He was filming this uh, Instagram live show he does called current mood. And his guest was Phineas, who I was a fan of. So I went and met Phineas and, um, I texted my uh, producer, Nikki. Kraft. Fascinating. What's that? Both of them, him and, uh, and Billy, very fascinating. Oh my God, brilliant, brilliant. And, yeah. and he's, a, yeah. he's a movie writer and a cinematic writer. And, and yeah, to leap ahead to what is so great about him, not only in terms of his talent, but because he's not only a solo artist, but he's also a producer. I think he, he has a real gift and interest in interpreting the soul of another artist. And I think he treated the film as a solo artist, he's producing the Vengeance album. What's the spirit of Vengeance? What's the feeling of it? And this was such a new blend of tones that I think it needed an original score. All the temp music was to this, to that. You know, it's not quite one genre. So anyway, at John's house, I met Phineas. We bonded over our favorite film scores. And he said, I've always wanted to do a film score. I said, can I send you the script? Um, but then in terms of the cast, it was really just, um, you know, um, Cooper had had 
given the script to Issa Ray at a general meeting. And she said, oh, I really like it. And I raced to, to meet her. And uh, Dove Cameron sent in a tape. You know, Ashton Kutcher was pitched to me um, by a producer. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. How do I get a meeting with him and just see? Um, you guys, great work together. Yeah, you thank him, you. You get him. I mean, he's organically funny, but he... You could see yeah. he's playing it straight. He's playing Absolutely. It. And I thought, you yeah. know, this is such an amazing opportunity because I know Ashton Kutcher enough to know, uh, you know, even I worked with him on Punk 20 years ago, but really just from like interviews he does and stuff. You know, this is a, a completely serious, intellectual, um, hypnotically charismatic tech investor. You know, we've never seen that version of him on screen. How do we put that into a character? So, um, you know, the cast really came came from a lot of different places combination of auditions and you know stroke of genius from some producer etc this episode is brought to you by snapple welcome to the snapple market auditory experience close your eyes imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store you make your way to the back and reach for your favorite snapple flavor you can't wait you take a sip Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. So I know you get this question probably all the time, but it's us asking, it's deadline asking. What it, will it take for a reboot of The Office to happen. <laughs> is that a Greg Daniels decision or can any one of you at any, can you and Mindy say, you know, we are, we're gonna do it. And we're gonna, uh, we're gonna, I mean, we're gonna drive this train. I was like, when you said that, I was like, Office reboot or Mindy Kaling? <laughs> um, and you worked them both into the question, but of course, um, of course. Um, <laughs> the, I think, I think, I don't know contractually, but I know spiritually it's mm -hmm. a Greg Daniels thing pure Greg Daniels thing. I think everyone, um, everyone knows that he is the, um, he is the person who, mm -hmm. um, who controls the, the rights to the office, uh, spiritually, creatively, the American office. I, again, I don't know the, the law of it, but, but we all know that it's, it's a Greg Daniels question. And then do you think one will ever happen? Or is this kind of like the Deadwood movie where, you know, they immediately, like after Deadwood and after Deadwood ended after three seasons, they were like, oh, it's going to be impossible yeah. to get them all back together. You know, McShane's over here and, you know, this yeah. one's over and Timothy is over here. Is it like that with you guys? Like it would be just this, it would be a seismic force of nature to, to get everyone back together. Uh, definitely you wouldn't get everyone back together. I mean, right. that, that ship I'm sure has sailed. I think it's more about, is there anything to, um, to mine creatively that's fresh? Um, I just think it needs to be approached as a, as an artistic decision, not as a financial decision. And I worry that there's so much financial pressure, mm -hmm. uh, understandably to mine this, you know, uh, precious metal in the ground called you know the office reboot or spinoff or whatever I, I worry because the office originally was done for the opposite of money it looked to all of us in that little writer's room 
like the most unlucrative, stupid decision we could have ever made to make a dreary, fake documentary set in an office um, with no shiny stars, no music, um, no colors practically, definitely no studio audience um, that was meant to show the mundanities of a paper company that let alone all of that, that was a remake of a British show that everyone hated us for even attempting. So, and we just did it because we we're like, I really think we can make this funny for ourselves. And as Paul Lieberstein once said in the room, we all know this is getting canceled. Let's just make something so funny that other writers will see it and give us our next job, you know? And that's what made it successful. So I think working the other way, thinking like, how could we get money? It, it really needs to come from that artistic, this would be a brilliant, beautiful um, next chapter. And I just worry. Do you think where we are as a TV audience when it comes to a sense of humor, do you think it would be harder to continue now? Are there any challenges because of political correctness or anything or nah? Comedy is comedy and comedy will break through. I basically believe comedy is comedy and comedy will break through. And I don't think that the the audience of The Office has ever not understood the tone or the feeling of The Office. I think that's why it's so popular. But I think, look, I think in general, um, sort of um, the people who worry about what comedy will play uh, over worry. I think audiences are very smart and they know they know the tone. I think people that get offended are often getting offended good for sort of out of a good place they're they're getting offended on behalf of people they think might be offended who in fact have uh, are not offended they have great sense of humor so i don't know but i do think in general comedy is comedy i do think though that the world that the office was set in was not as high stakes as this one so i i would worry that um that it's not funny to have people have different political opinions in the election of 2024. It's not so funny anymore. Um, the things that are in real life, the world is less funny. So um, I don't know, you know, you don't want Dwight to say the wrong thing because you might really not like Dwight um, or, or Angela or Jim or anybody. So I don't know, now it's all hypothetical. I, I look, basically funny is funny. The question is, could the show be funny? And and that should be really the only question anyone asks about trying it again. And I I don't know if it could be right now, just because it really takes that inspiration. Bringing this back to you, your 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 collection of essays. One more thing, have you ever thought of adapting that into film? I mean, you have these wonderful stories. You know, your your dad was a ghostwriter. Mm -hmm. You know, one of your early comedy bits is. Michael Jackson was in your, you were at a party, you were at an adult party with Michael Jackson. Oh yeah, that's- He did not do anything. Yeah, that's not even a bit. You. That's not even a bit. That's just the, the strangest real thing that's ever happened in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And then- yeah, Comedy in my, in my background for sure. Nancy Reagan, Lee Iacocca in your kitchen. No, no, that's an exaggeration. I went to Magic Johnson's house um, when I was 12, that was pretty mind blowing. You know, I've definitely had, a, had some mind blowing things, but, um, uh, but no, not that. And also, yeah, I mean, uh, George Stephanopoulos, I mean, was at my house once, you know, there's certainly some special people, um, and unusual people, um, in, in the orbit, but I think growing up, like it was just such an interesting 
I, I was just, I mean, I, I was so lucky in so many obvious ways, but one of the less obvious ones is um, being sort of connected, but a step away from people like that. My father's job was not to be the, the star. It was to sort of get in the mind of that person. And I think that's a lesson I, I took so much from writing is that, you know, you, what would Dwight think? How would Michael phrase this, you know, and that's something I tried to do in the movie too, with the, the Texans, um, you know, that I didn't grow up with, but, you know, how do you really get in, in their mind and, and bring it out like that? So I think ghostwriting is one of the, the many huge advantages I had. It's not an obvious one, but I think it's maybe the biggest that I saw my father and respected him for writing as other people. Now, um, you told us what inspired you for filmmaking. It was the time when you when you first saw Pulp Fiction. But getting into comedy, mm -hmm. what what I mean, look, Harvard Lampoon, you're set. That's great. That's fantastic. But what what led you down this road? What what um, made you look at the world, you know, with, with a tilt in your head? I don't know. I always thought, you know, I'm one of those normal ones. And I, I honestly think it's, it's alienated me a little bit from the comedy community. Um, you know, because like, you know, the Mark Marins of the world, um, you know, definitely see comedy is for outsiders. Comedy is for, um, you know, people that have a broken um, uh, past and need to heal. And, and I, I agree. It feels that way to me too, that the spirit of comedy, I don't know. I just always was an ambitious kid for comedy. I wanted to make the best comedy and work the hardest of comedy. And, and that's just where I was driven. And I do think I had a, um, a wonderful background in childhood. And I always took um, uh, sort of inspiration from, from having learned that Jerry Seinfeld said, I'm, I'm have no tragedy in my life. I'm normal. And he's so funny and made such a great show. And then I heard that both of his parents are orphans. And I was like, <laughs> I was like Wait, what? Like, and I was like, I don't know what it, maybe there is something in my life or past that did make me pursue comedy of all things with this relentless, um, relentlessness, you know, instead of like, I don't know, um, finance or something like, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe there is something it, about it, but Michael I Jackson, well, look, categories. I did play categories of Michael Jackson, but that's a, isn't that a wonderful thing? Not a, in my case, traumatic thing in my case. Right, exactly. But again, like, I, I don't know. I think I had the most wonderful, lucky um, childhood and somehow still wanted to just devote myself obsessively to comedy. And uh, and I don't know if it comes from anywhere that I don't know about or just like, yeah, sometimes some people want to be baseball players and some people want to be comedy writers. Is, have you, have you performed uh, stand-up uh as we've come out of the pandemic not a long time no not not since before the pandemic do would you would you ever go back yeah i think about it um i would like to do something new though i'd like to have something to say i feel that the stand-up that you knew me as um when i started was um uh sort of of a different personality and, and era you know it's like oh i'm 25 and 2000 whatever What's a sort of charming new observation? And that's not who I am or, or what the world is. Um, so yeah, if I if I did something on stage, I'd, I'd want to really think um, what was worth saying and what might someone want to hear. And uh, 
and you know, I think by the way, I don't think I would talk personally about my life. I I think for me, what's personal is is how I see the world and do you see it that way too? But I also don't, I don't know, only if it's funny. I don't know. I also have been very lucky that I have these, I have other outlets for something that I'm burning to to experiment with. So um and I respect stand-up so much. I mean, the people that are doing it well today are so good. Uh, I think it would be hard to get myself back on stage knowing that, you know, the Mulaney's of the world and the Bill Burr's of the world are out there. Um, at, at Ali Wong, you know, the, every day I see a new special that I think, how would I ever, ever uh, get myself back up to the, that peer group? BJ Novak, thank you so much. Thank you for talking. Great conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.